Welcome everybody to episode two of Literary Disco, the Half-A-Life episode. My name is Ryder Strong, actor, filmmaker. Today's show in three parts. We're going to do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I each take something down from our bookshelf to discuss. And then we'll delve into Darren Strauss's memoir, Half-A-Life. And finally, Todd will introduce you all to his infamous poet voice. <laughs> Joining me via the interwebs today are fellow writers and book nerds, uh, Julia Pastel and Todd Goldberg. Julia is an essayist and radio personality, and Todd Goldberg is a novelist and critic. How's it going, guys? It goes well. Very well. So you have something from your bookshelf to discuss. I have two things, in fact, that I want to discuss. So um, the first thing is that I've been I've been working on a new book, so I've been listening to a lot of music while I write, and, and generally I listen to a lot of music while I write anyway. And I sometimes get obsessed with story songs, and <laughs> I then have to figure out if story songs are better or worse than some of the books I've read in my life. Like for instance, <laughs> um, uh, "Please Come to Boston," you know, where that guy he's he's got a job and he's working at a cafe and he wants his girl to come, but she won't come out, but. I have no she, idea what the song is. Who, who sings that song? Uh, Kenny Loggins' kid brother, Dave, or okay. Kenny Loggins' older brother, Dave. Okay. Yeah. You know, please come to Boston for the springtime. No? No, no. memory? No. Well, it's a terrible song. I love it. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, the, the conceit is that he goes all around the world becoming a huge pop star, and his girl's waiting for him and wants him to come back to Tennessee, where he's from. And it's sort of a heartbreaking song about the perils of becoming a multimillionaire rock star. Kind of like Lucky by Britney Spears. It, very similar if I'd ever heard that song, um, but I don't think I have. She's um, so lucky. You don't know the song? No. I'll sing you, I'll sing you the uh, four lines of the chorus. She's okay. so lucky. She's a star, but she cries, cries, cries in her lonely heart thinking something. Something, something missing in my life and why do these tears come at night <laughs> oh god i love it oh my god why do the tears come at night why do they yeah it's a fantastic question right, why do that, they come at night sorry to interrupt that was just, awesome no, that was so beautiful. so there's well there's there's that song then i was also thinking about a song that i know that Ryder loves which is taxi by harry chapin where the guy is driving in his taxi oh. and he picks up his ex girlfriend and uh you know she was gonna be an actress but now she's acting like she's happy and he was gonna fly planes but now he's flying in his taxi and it's a horrible horrible song that i absolutely love so story songs have been sort of in my head lately so of course i'm on the spotify machine and so i made like an 85 track story song thing that i've been listening to and then because i'm apparently forced to live publicly People are like, why are you listening to The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia over and over again? <laughs> but then I also started thinking about the story songs about what it's like to be on the road and how tough it is when you're missing your family, like um, Wanted, Dead, or Alive by Bon Jovi and Faithfully by Journey. And, uh, and, and how, you know, you don't ever really get books by authors about how tough it was rolling into the Barnes & Noble at 2 a.m. and... Meeting the hot chick behind the counter offered him a scone. <laughs> you know, he... It was so hard on my book tour. I, I'm going to object here because you do get a lot of writers writing about how hard it is to write. Right, but you don't get books about 
book tours. Because the life of a writer is like incredibly lonely, boring. You're sitting you sit around writing. A lot, yeah. You're sitting and writing at your desk. So yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how much of a book I could read that started, you know, I woke up in Delaware, the Borders books closed in front of me, never to open again. I walked across the street to the Books a Million, stood in the middle of the romance section and knocked one out to the cover of a hot new one from <laughs> Page Binding or whatever. Now that actually maybe I would read. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me Page Binding is actually a, the name uh, uh, of One the of the authors. It's got to be at some point, right? right? So I've been thinking about story songs, but then I was also thinking about um, one last thing. I was thinking about the Elmore Leonard book, Out of Sight, um, which became a really good movie with my lookalike George Clooney and uh, Jennifer Lopez. Um, because I'm always, uh, so I, I always marvel at Elmore Leonard's ability to give empathy to people you'd normally not have empathy for, which in the case of Out of Sight is an inveterate bank robber who you end up liking even though he escapes from prison and you know goes on a crime spree and falls in love with the U.S. Marshal and all these things. And it's just because he has a really interesting personality and you, you like him as a guy and you're able to just look at his crimes and be like, oh, that's just what he does for a living. He just robs banks. And I think that's a fascinating thing that Elmore Leonard's been able to do over the course of his career, which is create bad guys that you empathize with, with which I think is really hard. And I, I mean... You know, I, I think I think TV lately has has shown us that we're more interested in really flawed people than we are in inherently good people. You don't see Mr. Rogers having a you know an hour long show at night, perhaps because he's dead. But you know we you know we're watching Justified or Sons of Anarchy or Mad Men or whatever, and these are you know these are typical villains that are the main characters frequently. Um, and I think a lot of that actually the influence a lot of it comes from Elmore Leonard um, because he's been writing these books for so long. And I know people have been buying him for, you know, a thousand years. The, the, the hero, the idea of the hero is, has changed a lot. And I think Elmore Leonard plays a role in that. All right, Julian, what do you have? Um, well, I, so a little background. I work at the Mark Twain House, and one of the things we do is to bring writers to speak all the time. And in June, we're having um, Judy Bloom come and speak. And I'm really excited because it's going to be a moderated discussion and I am the moderator. So I'm very excited, but I'm also pretty scared about it. So I've decided that the best course of action is to reread the entire collected works of Judy Bloom, (laughs) 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 which actually really isn't that hard because the books are short. They're children's books. She did write a few, um, adult books that are side note, very racy, but, uh, yes, very, so I have read three Judy Bloom books in the past 24 hours, and wow. they're all revisits. So I read a very short picture book called um, The One in the Middle of the Green is the Green Kangaroo. Oh, I'm reading them chronologically, too. And that's about a kid's, like, anxiety about being a middle child. And then her second book was... Aren't you a middle called- child, Julia? No, I'm the oldest. Oh, you're the oldest that you know yeah. of. Are you saying I seem to have a? <laughs> I'm not saying anything. Middle I just, child syndrome. I might have had a conversation with your parents. They spoke of a child that they gave away. Ooh, go ahead. Awkward. I'm so glad I got to find that out yeah. while recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the the her third one is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which is pretty ubiquitous. But her second one, which is the one I'm really interested in talking about, is this book called Iggy's House, which I read when I was a kid. But I've never heard anyone talk about it, but it's it's really good. It was written in 1970, and it's about a girl who 
her best friend moves out of the house across the street and a black family moves in and the neighborhood tries to get them out of there. So I've, yeah. And it's all from this girl's point of view and, and how she's just excited to have new friends in the neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually extremely Twainian. It is, it's very similar to Huck Finn (laughs) and that she's grappling with what she thinks about them and, and there's multiple kids, so they all kind of have different points of view on how they feel about treating this way, being treated this way in the neighborhood. It's just really, you know, it's a children's book, but it goes to a lot of levels for 117 pages. It took me two and a half hours to read. So if you're interested. Yeah, I've never read any of her stuff, actually. So. There was never like a time when you were on the, the schoolyard where people pulled out, um, are you are there? They got there, got it to me, Margaret, and read about the... You know, the period scenes and whatnot. Or we must, we must, we must improve our, our bust. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I hadn't thought about that I know in a that thousand chant, years. But I didn't know that that was <laughs> I mean, I say that chant a lot. I mean, I mean I say it I'm at Ralph's and I see a girl and I'm just like. <laughs> yeah, it's people love to talk about the period aspect because in the 70s, uh, there was like a belt apparatus that you had to wear and <laughs> this has not been what? changed. What? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too graphic here, but uh yeah. any girl who has read this will know what I'm talking about cuz it's extremely misleading now. Wh- like it's you go what? to your mom and you're like, "What's this about a belt?" <laughs> it's like, "Never mind." <laughs> what what is Judy this Blue? belt that you use with with a tampon? There's a belt that goes no, with a tampon. No, no, not with a tampon, with, with a, a pad. pad. Yeah, I feel very I uncomfortable know. right now. <laughs> I need to, I need to see a picture. I guess I don't know, but God. it's a classic. I, I mean, she writes. I don't need to see a picture. I can. I need to see a picture. <laughs> I need to see a series <laughs> of evolutionary photos of the belt and the pad in concert with each other. Uh, but her strength, I mean, just to sum up, her a strength belt? is writing about the anxieties of children. She is really, really good about writing about what kids worry about sure. and making their worries real. So I, if you've never read her, I recommend it. Great. Um, all right. For my revisit, um, I'm going to be incredibly superficial. Um, oh. First, I'm going to, uh, I feel like I'm admitting that I'm, I'm cheating on you guys, but I am part of a book club. And we're what? Honest, what? Yeah. And we're on our second round of books, and we, you know, we've all chosen one book, and and so now we decided for our second round to choose favorites, old favorites that maybe everyone else hasn't read. And um, so my girlfriend, who's also in the book club, how dare you? By the way, go ahead. She chose (laughs) a a book that we both had read years ago and loved, called Drop City by T. C. Boyle. So I've been rereading that. So that's really, I mean. On, on, on a basic level, that's my revisiting is uh, Drop City, which is a great book about uh, a commune uh, in Northern California in the 70s that decides to move to Alaska um, hmm. because they're having problems with the local um, you know, uh, law enforcement. And they just decide, like, oh, if we really want to get back to the land, we should go to Alaska. So it becomes this really interesting sort of conflict between... Uh, the ideals of the counterculture movement, you know, wanting to get back to the land and actually getting back to the land. And, you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting look, um, you know, things like uh, vegetarianism suddenly become a much bigger deal when you're actually have to kill animals to survive the Alaskan winter. And anyway, so reading this book has been interesting just because I actually am liking it less the second time around. And I'm realizing (laughs) it's incredibly, um, it's really kind of overwritten uh so so far i mean i'm, I'm, on, I'm only a couple hundred pages in and anyway 
so that that I mean that that's been an interesting experience, and I I want I want to finish the book. But then I had the moment where I saw the author photograph at the back of the book, <laughs> and suddenly I didn't want to reread this book, and I never wanted to admit that this is one of my favorite books, and that's why I'm being so superficial. But T.C. Boyle, I'm going to put this on our website so our listeners can see. T.C. Boyle is wearing this flowery vest. He's got rings, and he just looks like he looks like he's trying so hard to be the hippest. And it just it's so douchey. Well, and like, I, and I've never. That's, I've that's always how he liked, dresses, though. Have you ever so, seen him in your life? No, I never. I have no he, idea. Like so that's his. That's I, his outfit. It's insane, that's... and it makes me. But the reason why it gets to me so much, I think, is that here's this book about the counterculture, and it's criticizing people that are people that dress like dressed up like hippies that, but didn't actually understand what it meant, and like it's it's like the whole thing is about criticizing, you know, being douchey and like dressing the part and not it and then i see this photograph and i'm like you are that guy like and i i'm so judgmental of him in such an awful superficial way and i just but now i, I would argue that he's dressed like a middle school chorus teacher i but it's just i if you know what i wish i'd never seen that photograph because i can't get it out of my mind when i'm reading because now i'm seeing that guy reading me this book and i hate it so much and then I had, and then I realized I had the exact same experience a couple weeks ago because I had this friend who told me to read this book called Conquistador by S. M. Sterling, which I had never heard of, but he told me the story, and it's this sort of alternate history, you know, sci-fi y sort of thing. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like stuff I normally read. I should give it a shot. And so I picked it up and I started reading it, and I wasn't loving it. And then again, I looked back at the author <laughs> photograph, and I'm going to put this one up. And I was so turned off because I could suddenly see this guy writing the book and it was just, it's the worst photograph. And Todd, I know that you have a blog entry that you wrote a couple years ago about bad author photographs. Yeah. I, I would rather never see an author photograph. I don't think we should, I think we should just get rid of author photographs completely. Because what, what is the alternative? Like that it's a really good looking person that we, that fits, like it shouldn't matter, right? Like we should just not have author photographs. Like the books, well, books yeah, are one of the last places. we have the internet. Right, <laughs> we do yeah. have the internet. I know, but, but I never know, get it. I never wanted to see what T.C. Boyle looks like. I, I mean, the reason I read T.C. Boyle is because of his writing and his stories. And now I know what T.C. Boyle looks like and I can identify or not with him as a person. <laughs> and I choose not. And therefore, I, and I, I it's choose like, not. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? I remember getting to the You, discussion. who, by the way, Ryder, grew up on a fucking hippie commune. And I did not grow up on a commune. I feel like you've lived in L.A. too long. Because of being superficial now and judging people. No, no hold on a minute. Ryder grew up in a place he calls the Shire, a sprawling hippie well, commune part of the in North California. Part, part of the reason why I love Drop City is that it actually takes place in my home county. It's it, That's one of the reasons I first read it is because it, it's based on a couple communes that were only miles from where I grew up. I did not you grow up a, on a commune. But, you are a self-hating hippie is but, what you wait, are. You think that his clothing indicates that he's a hippie? No, to me, his clothing indicates that he's like trying to be this like artsy, fartsy, sensitive male. That that's what that's what the T.C. Boyle photograph says to me. That, that but it, it doesn't matter. What the point is, authors should not have photographs. I think we should just get rid of it. Can we just get rid of it? Like, that they steal your soul. They do. Well, they they you hurt know, the, the book, or they help the book in a way that they shouldn't help the book. Like, should I be? 
Like, if I see a beautiful woman, you know, if I see a, a woman's photograph in the back of a book and she's beautiful, which does happen a lot. I feel like Jennifer Egan is actually pretty good looking. But it's like, what am I supposed to feel about that? Like, I, I should be judging it based on... I'll tell you who's, who's the hottie is that Jennifer Egan. I like, I like that goon squad, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, really? Well, you see a beautiful woman on the back of a book ride and you're like, oh, yeah. I'm going to get involved with that thing. No, I'm saying, that's what I'm saying is, what's the point? Why do we have these photographs? Why do we have an author's photograph anymore? We shouldn't do it. It shouldn't be part of the book. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, there is a history of, quote-unquote, plain women who were amazing writers. And now we can look back (laughs) and say they were equally as famous in their time as as good-looking women. That's good, right? That's what I I mean. I feel like books are the last vestige of... Just it, ju- I mean, we're supposed to not judge a book by its cover. We're supposed to read a book and, and like or dislike somebody. You know, I don't want to see their photograph. Is what I'm saying. I never want to see the well, photograph. for better or worse. Writer, maybe <laughs> maybe just don't look. I agree. I, I'll try. I will make this pledge. <laughs> but I'm just telling. Like you should you should look at the picture and say, "Wow, isn't it amazing that such a douchey looking person wrote a book that I liked so much?" You're right. You're right. And I'm going to embrace your positive attitude right now. <laughs> I love you, T.C. Boyle. Wear your flowery shirt. Grow your hair long. Get another ear piercing. It's awesome. Just oh, keep God. writing good books. Here we go. I'm not going to judge you. What What about the authors who dress up like their characters in their author photos? How do you feel I, I about had that? no idea this was a thing. <laughs> People do that? Oh, God, yes. We'll put a link to it on the... Uh, on the we'll th- put the yeah, we'll put it on our Facebook page. Yeah. Because yeah. it's pretty uh, remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that was a, a highly uh, insightful uh, bookshelf revisit by me. You guys had much better ones. Uh, between the songs and the photographs. Uh, Julia, you're the only one of us who's serious left. I'll always remember how we were. I'll always remember how it was I'll always remember how it was Welcome back to Literary Disco. I'm Julia Pastel, and I'm here with Todd Goldberg and Ryder Strong, and we are here to discuss Darren Strauss's memoir, Half a Life. Hi, guys. Hey. How's it going? I've never been better than I am right now because I've never run over anyone on a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, I'm yeah. locked, but I, I feel. It's, it's <laughs> definitely life is more uplifting than than this book that's for sure yeah it's important i think to have things in your life like i had this friend i won't say his full name evan light um who i used to keep around because whenever i felt like my life sucked i'd be like well at least my life isn't like evan light's <laughs> life and now we have and now we have darren strauss's book to compare I'm ourselves to <laughs> All right, so just for a little bit of background, Darren Strauss is a successful fiction writer. He's written several novels, including um, the award-winning Chang and Eng. And for this particular project, he wrote a piece uh, for This American Life about accidentally killing a girl who he knew in high school, um, when they were both in high school. And it turned into this memoir, Half a Life, published by McSweeney's a couple years ago. And since then, it has just gotten rave reviews um 
It's been a best book of the year by NPR, Amazon, Plain Dealer, San Francisco Chronicle, and it just won the 2010 National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. So I guess my first question would be is, um, what did you guys make of this book? How did you, how'd you like it? It's very happy. Very uplifting. It's a comedy. <laughs> it's a laugh riot. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I did like this book a lot. I, I mean, ultimately, I can see why it gets, it's gotten a lot of attention. And I, I realized after the fact that I, I had actually heard him read this on This American Life because I knew it sounded vaguely familiar, but I didn't know much else about it. Um, and so I was reminded of Dave Eggers at times, you know, sort of, I like even wrote that in the margins, like, Oh, this is so heartbreaking work of staggering genius. And I wasn't surprised at the end looking at, you know, at the back of my book, they talk about the fact that Dave Eggers actually helped him edit it. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I don't really think that that's a great thing because that Dave Eggers self-conscious memoir style kind of got on my nerves a little bit. Um, it, it it did in Dave Eggers, certainly. I could never finish Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. But this is, I, I feel like this one is, is more delicate. I think he's a better writer, a better memoir writer. Um, he has great control of language and tone. And ultimately, it's just a little long for me. Uh, it's a little too much self-examination. Uh, it's, the o- first it's only half, 175 pages. <laughs> I know, I know. And that's what's incredible is that I, but I still felt like we'd exhausted the subject by page 100. You know, um, because he is he's a great writer um, and his his evocation of this bizarre moving experience that he had is great. And then the second half of the memoir sort of becomes an examining examination of that examination. Um, It's you know, it's really a, a book about a lack of meaning, about not having a plot because we don't you know, this girl just kind of died and he didn't. He wasn't at fault. And so it's about that like hole at the center of the the book and the center of his life. And there's only so many times you can keep circling that lack of a plot. He talks about it how at one point he says, you know, there's no cathartic moment. You know, there's no epiphany. I never had there's not that one perfect moment that I can point to and say, This is when I got over it or this is when I got better. Um, and I think that that's totally true. And I think that's totally accurate. It just, you know, if this were a fiction book, it would be an incredibly boring fiction book because you need that moment. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the story moment. That's what you need is, is the sort of character having a main epiphany. So all this sort of self-reflecting, you know, stuff is great, but I just don't think it sustains for even 174 pages for me. I mean, Um, you know, um, well, I disagree. Um, I, I don't. I don't see the Dave Eggers thing at all. Um, you know, I think what what Dave Eggers did in a Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, a book which um, I liked about a third of, and I read the whole thing, is filled with sort of digressionary artifice that I don't think Darren Strauss does. I, I think that he he sources every angle of the experience, um, and it that he hits on the same thing over and over again, which is at its core, I don't know whether I killed her or she killed herself or if it was just an accident. And I don't know how to feel about these things or when I'll ever stop feeling about them. I mean, it does get to be sort of monotonous and you can you can skim parts of it because you're like, all right, so this is the part where he's gonna talk again about, you know, he should be thinking about Celine. Celine is the girl that, um, that dies in it. Um, but I, I ultimately found it, um, exceptionally moving and uh, and difficult to read because it I think it asks of the reader to examine 
the parts about themselves that those secrets, those emotional secrets that they don't divulge. Um, and I, I liked that. I, I found it, you know, I read it very quickly. I read it first when it came out, and I read it in like two hours then, and then I reread it just now. And I found it, reading it in one sitting straight through, I found it an extraordinarily emotional experience um, without sort of the the show that Dave Eggers puts on, you know, the where in Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, you know, he he devolves into stream of consciousness. Yeah. And all yeah. sorts of other stuff. No, you're right. It's certainly nowhere near as flashy. And it's not there's not, you know, there's not the humor too. I mean Dave Eggers right. is clearly making it's, a joke it of is himself. It's not a funny book. No, this is not he's not and, and so you're right. You're right. I mean maybe that's an unfair comparison. But I I, I guess it's it's this sort of approach to it's it's kind of an anti-memoir writing mm-hmm. memoir where it's like mm-hmm. he's sort of saying I know all the tricks and I'm not going to use them. You know, mm-hmm. that's it, what he's doing. And and, and I'm going to be straight with you and I'm going to try and actually get at this experience, which is in its its own way kind of a trick. Well, I was just going to read um one of the sentences comes right towards the end, which is interesting. Um even after all this time, nothing had forced me to examine the accident or Celine herself. Everyone had let me slip through, and I realized the only person who really had the authority to force that examination, for better or worse, was me. So for me, this was a book really about, you know, not about Celine at all, barely about the accident, you know, really about an act of remembering and an act mm-hmm. of trying to force himself to face this and to me i mean i i really liked it too todd and one of the things that was interesting was that it still seemed kind of un. i mean he obviously deals with all the issues but it still seems a little bit restrained or like he's been living with it for so long that he wasn't like crying his eyes out every second that he wrote the book like not even the book seemed to be an act of catharsis Yeah, one thing that's really interesting about the writing of this book is that when he wrote this, he was already pretty famous for fiction. You know, he didn't really seem to want to write it from the way it went and just sort of happened and came out of him. Do you think that that changes the writing of this book or what do you make of that, his transition from fiction to nonfiction? I think about, you know, there's a great memoir that came out, um, I think two years ago, called Night of the Gun by David Carr, the New York Times writer, where he basically goes back and sources his drug addiction and all the terrible, awful things he did during the course of 20 years of being you know, a, a drug addict and uh, a criminal and all sorts of different things, where he has to go back and find out the truth about who he was. That's one kind of memoir about trauma. Then there's this one, which is he knows exactly who he was and exactly what happened, but he, he can't make a decision about fault, and there's never going to be a decision about fault. And that, that's what I think makes his skills as a novelist interesting in this regard because I think being a novelist is all about supposition, supposing what might happen for all these different people, imagining these futures. He's imagined Celine's future because Celine's parents put it on him. They told him basically you have to live two lives. And I think the weight of that informs the way he's written this book. It's really, I mean, the the phrase that I ended up sort of jotting down was that it's a self-portrait of grief. And that's sort of its greatest strength, but it's also kind of a, a weakness in some ways, uh, for me at least it was, because it, that that self-turning and self-obsession, that's all you get. You know, like that's all this mm-hmm. book is, is, is. I mean, like you were saying with the David Carr uh, memoir, which I haven't read, but, you know, he, he's going back. He's actually doing something. Uh, you know, I, I realized pretty early on that that he's never going to go, we're never going to get the story of the Zilks, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the parents. I thought maybe, you know, 
I well more dramatic and maybe maybe more exploitative, but certainly a less self-obsessed writer would go to visit the Zilks, you know. And, and, and didn't you think that he would at the end? I, maybe, I kept, but but I, 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 I like there. I said, I kind of realized early on. I was like, oh, this is this is just going to be about this. This is just going to be about turning over on himself constantly, and oh, you know, looking at himself again and looking at himself one more time, and and. You know, I don't think I don't, I'm not judging him when I say self-obsessed. Like I don't mean that in like a, the worst way possible because it, it it has produced a really some striking emotional moments and and some beautiful moments in this book. But but it is a self-obsessed book. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about you know looking at himself over and over again. And um and I did kind of at the end I was like, man, I want to know where the Zilks are nowadays. Like I want to know <laughs> what's happening with them and. You know, he obviously, it's not his, you know, it's obviously his intention to keep them away from this book and to not make it about them and to focus on, you know, and not in a bad way. It's just that was never his ambition. It's a very focused and carefully crafted look at himself and at, at, at this grief, you know, coming over, the, uh, overcoming this grief in his life. Um, just to go back to what you were saying about the Zilks and wanting them to, I also desperately wanted that wrap up. But as it is nonfiction, it does not seem like the Zilks would ever want to be a part of, of that in any way. And let's say, you know, even if Darren Strauss really, really wanted that wrap-up too, the Zilks can just say no. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the real-world nonfiction level of it that is so unbearably painful for us as readers as well. And I, I don't think that takes away from the book. I think that just gets us deeper into what hell it must be to live in Darren Strauss's head every day of mm-hmm. never getting resolution. And that's, I mean, that's what sort of living in the world that we live in, the cliche provides us from TV and movies and such is that, in other books, is that they're going to have that moment. They're going to have that right. adult moment where he's going to show up with his kids and his wife and they're going to the hug it out. Gonna, yeah. And, and, you <laughs> yeah know, they'll welcome him with open arms. And, and, yeah. and the, his children will be their children now. And, you know, the, the, the truth is that most times, you know, terrible stuff happens and it just continues to happen and there's no happy resolution for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I wanted it at the end. I wanted that moment. And I realized as I wanted it that it was just, you know, my desire to have this wrap up in two hours and then have the credits roll. Um, And that's just not how, it's just not how life is. Yeah. And he, it started as a much shorter piece, first a radio piece and then a piece in GQ. And as audience response, not critical response, but as audience response came through, people were saying to him directly, I need this. I'm like, thank you for writing this essentially. And I think that is why it became as long and full and and big as it is. Do you guys have anything else you want to add? Uh, I think it would suck to run someone over. I think that's the life lesson here is that killing someone, even if it's not your fault, is uh, is not pleasant. The only thing I would like to, and this really doesn't have much to do with the book, but did your did your your editions have a um a reader's guide yes. in the yeah. back. I found that so interesting. It was like, th- it's the longest reader's guide ever. It has an essay. Mine has an essay by Darren Strauss, which is basically like, because, I mean, really the last 30 pages of the book itself is talking about writing the book itself. Right. And then we get the reader's guide with an essay by Darren Strauss about why he wrote the book and how he wrote the book. And then there's a conversation with Darren Strauss <laughs> 
by Colin McCann, a uh, great writer. Uh, and and then there's questions for the reading group. I was like, <laughs> how many times can we analyze this girl's death? And like the narrative of writing the narrative of this girl's death. I was like, guys, just let it like, I think that's what, you know, maybe threw me over the edge and put me in the sort of mindset of like, come on, this book is too long. It's not its actual length, but the fact that it's just, it's interesting that we're so endlessly revisiting this moment and or that he's endlessly revisiting this moment, even outside of the confines of the book itself. You know, it's like, I don't know. And that it brings up one of those issues I, I sometimes have with nonfiction, um, which is about sort of glorifying horrible experiences. Um, and then just like you were saying, writer, taking them apart piece by piece, talking about them more, where I feel like it, it sometimes becomes sort of, torture porn to read Mm -hmm. this stuff yeah um yeah but you know that didn't stop me from reading all of it from beginning to end Mm -hmm. and then all the study questions too so there's a little bit of not to you know this is maybe a pun here but it's a little bit like looking at a car accident um and and you know gawking at it as you drive by that you can't stop looking even if you're sick of looking at it yeah and an extreme desperation to make meaning when darren strauss refuses to you know, especially right. some of the questions are just hilariously <laughs> like they're very self-helpy. They're they're like, OK, Darren Strauss couldn't couldn't help himself. Let's let's figure it out together. Uh, like you can just imagine. <laughs> right. A, right. Yeah. You can just imagine a book club, you know, f- where everybody gets to say like, well, I would feel this way or I would feel this way rather than really meditating on Darren Strauss's intimate experience this book i think asks the readers to take a role in it you know because somewhere in the middle i'm i my own thought was dude you're not responsible you know this is fate or chance or whatever and she turned her tire in and you hit her and you know what you were they said you weren't guilty get beyond it and then the other part of me is like there's no way i could get beyond this there's Mm -hmm. no way oh yeah um you know i I still feel bad for putting my dog to sleep (laughs) um and that's i mean it's sort of like a a, a cult of survivor's guilt and and then we're a part of it too because now now we're analyzing it so we're all we're doing is perpetuating it and this poor girl's still dead i mean it's it's the same reason that i don't read books by uh, conversion books mm-hmm. or you know books about people that have gone through drug rehab you know where it's like that's that's one type of book but i think it 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 takes away from half a life to put it in the same category as that you know and and all that readers group stuff at the end really did that for me and and it just it turned me off it turned me off to the whole book unfortunately as opposed you know because it made it sound like I mean, it was already virgin because he talks about in the book writing the book and how the writing the book is the catharsis in a way <laughs> um you know and it's like okay so now we're just going to end there with this con- you know self-reflection reflecting on yourself reflecting on yourself <laughs> you know and then but then to have the tag at the end like you know the fact that I don't know that there's a whole fan base of people who are doing that. It just turned me off. I was like, oh, let's just let this be a work of literature and and have, you know, the interesting parts about it, the the way he writes in particular and, um, you know, his voice. And, you know, there were good things about it that I just kind of wanted to let them be. And I was, you know, but maybe that's too nitpicky. And I agree. No, no, it's not, because that's part of our culture now. I mean, I hate myself that I immediately tried to, like, Google image Celine. 
<laughs> come on. You did it too, Todd. I know it. I right. did. <laughs> you didn't come up. All that came up were covers of the book. I'm horrible. Right. I'm part of the problem. I know. I'm a, I'm a monster. <laughs> but it's this this feeling of like I've had this experience. Every time I, I read a book or see a movie that I really like now, I do this. Like I, I hold back for as long as I can, which is usually approximately 15 minutes. <laughs> and then I just want to find out everything I possibly can about the book the writing of the book, the author, etc., to complete the experience in some way, to know every little thing about it, like to watch it with the commentary on, if, right. if possible, right. you know? Right. And it's not, for a meditative book like this, it doesn't help. It just makes you feel kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, do, I do the same thing, I realize. I mean, I look up lyrics to songs and try and find the real story. You know, it's like <laughs> right. we have all this meta information at our fingertips, so we're constantly trying to find that, that information or trying to access it or trying to make that. So the entertainment, the art form, the movie, the song, the book doesn't exist independent anymore. I mean, not that it ever really did, but, you know, we don't, I don't feel that way about, like, when I read Huck Finn for the first time, it wasn't right. that way. You know, it's just a book, start to finish. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't, you know, you had to go to English class to hear about how, you know, Mark Twain took four years off when he started, you know, took this, sec you know, whatever, the meta information. But now it's like the meta information is what's being marketed to us. That's almost more important than the actual entertainment. Right, actual especially art. with nonfiction. I mean, because you know yeah. the, the, the truth or the real story or whatever, I'm making air quotes, is is out there <laughs> is to be had aggrieved air quotes actually is what they were yeah <laughs> um, but you know <laughs> you feel like you can find the answer or you feel like there is always totally. more information to be found and with nonfiction, like any control that the writer has about writing about himself is kind of immediately undone by that pattern of behavior right right, right. that's i guess that's yeah, what bugged me a great about point it. yeah, yeah. Well, even before we did this uh, this podcast today, I I was listening to the new James Addiction album, which is terrible. And there's a song called "End of the Lies," and I was like, I wonder if this is about the bass player. And I Googled it, as if I was going to find an interview with Perry Farrell saying this is about the bass player. And all I found was a bunch of you know <laughs> people on blogs saying, I wonder if this is about the bass player. And then I thought, yeah, people just like you, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's just a four minute song that you know. <laughs> Can it just be what it is? And of course it can't because, you know, I have to go find out what the real story is behind it. It makes me wonder, you know, if we can ever look at nonfiction again like we did when we were kids or whatever, where we didn't then go try to find out the multiple sources or find out the truth or get a picture of someone from a story. It's, you know, it's a, a more interactive approach now. And I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's changed forever. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens to nonfiction and memoir in like 20 years, because the whole process of living and recording how you live is so obsessive now. I mean, being on Facebook and Twitter and like kind of like processing your life as if each six hour block of your life had its own little status or tag and then you upload it and then it's like gone from your brain rather than letting those hours and days pile up into one larger meaning is really different way to live. Yeah, I mean if 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 Facebook had existed when this all happened to Darren Strauss, you know, he would have had, Oh my God, I killed Celine today, you know, as his Facebook update. You know, it it removes a lot of the secrets. You know, it, it fundamentally changes I think how we deal with memory. And I think what was fascinating about this book to me 
in a lot of ways is that it's very much possessed by memory um, and how he can't remember exact details anymore. He remembers snatches, like he remembers where her body was and, and things like that. Or he remembers creating that narrative right mm-hmm. like he did. talking to the cops and getting right. the story down right. yeah he doesn't remember at the actual experience he just remembers remembering it or, right. which is you know All right, i love that moment where he he's obviously in shock and then he kind of poses in mm-hmm. grief oh, you oh know? Yeah, that's a great yeah, moment that is one awesome of the most true moment. feeling things it's like he's mm-hmm. posing but it's also true but and it's like inherently the most sincere and most insincere Thing he could possibly do. That, those are the sorts of things that make me sort of overlook the the self indulgence of being self indulging about being yourself and indulging in yourself that happens towards <laughs> the end of the book. I think where he's talking yeah. about the writing of the writing of the writing, um, because you you get an insight into human behavior. I think from the things that he's talking about um, that are are kind of sh- you know shocking because they're true because you can see yourself doing similar things. Okay, well, this was a great discussion. Thanks, guys. Uh, we are geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can cut that part out, right? <laughs> yeah. It was at uh, 4204. <laughs> I'll always remember how it was. I'll always remember how it was. I'll always remember how it was. Life to live and that's right, child So if that's something you won't do Then do it right now Make that moment last, ooh Before you know what it's gonna pass you All you can do is remember how it was Staying up way too late Living out a suitcase Finger with my toothpaste Anyway, many days Are in my heart like Penny Lane Not that I ain't felt plenty pain But we live through it and then we gain A little wisdom Try and spread the light like prison Listen, I sit and chillin' like my ism And remember how we was I'll always remember how we was I'll always remember how we was I'll always remember how we was Okay, everybody. We are back here at Literary Disco. Um, one of the things that uh, I hate most in the world is the sound of poets reading their poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Not all poets. I think we can agree. You're a bad person. I'm a bad person. <laughs> it's, it's that poet who reads in that halting lilt. And we have a poet in the room here. Um, writer, why do poets read in that weird halting lilt? Well, it comes from the the desire to replicate the line. So, like you know, in poetry, when a poem, when a, a line of poetry ends, there's a a pause, a caesura, mm. if you will. Is that even the right word? I a, don't know. <laughs> it's 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 if there's not punctuation. You still want to take a momentary sort of breath to, you know, if you're going, this is what bad poets do. Bad poets, when they read their stuff, are insecure about what they're actually saying. So they flatten their voice out and hope that the words themselves will speak for themselves. Like this weird, like it it gives each word its equal weight. It's a way to sort of like, I don't know. It's it's bad. It's terrible. But the, the alternative is like what slam poets do, which is even weirder. Oh, they Bush, do like, Bush, George Bush. No, <laughs> there's also like this sort of like hip hoppy speak that that, right. that some some slam poets like like this weird musically sort of mm-hmm. poetry performance. So that's like what a lot of slam poets do. And then there's 
what Todd makes fun of, which is the sort of flat poet <laughs> voice. I don't know. I think maybe is that an accurate? Description? Yeah, that, it's it's that. Uh, well, well, you know, I shouldn't describe it. I should just do it. You know, yeah. part of part of what I think we we're going to do periodically here is I'm going to discover some poetry, some found poetry, <laughs> and uh, and recite it to you guys in poet voice, and then make you guess um, the source of the work. I'm right. Um, so I have two selections. Uh, they're both very short. Um, I've only added two things to each of these found poems. Uh, the words either mother or father. Um, <laughs> periodically the word upon. And, um, and uh, the three words I hate you um, also will appear in each poem that I do in this series. So let me, uh, let me read the first one to you guys here. <clears throat> let me... Uh, I'm darkening the room a little bit. I'm smoking a clove. Um, and here we go. I entitle this poem, as I will entitle all of the poems, Mother. <laughs> Mother, if you have encountered, if you can't look at a jellyfish and see how miraculously complex it is, I don't know why it is, but people seem to look at, say, a computer and say, well, that's the computer. I don't know how it works, but it does. You know, upon the silly job, I give it. And so they don't know, mother, how to look at prose, something man-made or something natural, and see that its beauty is in reckoning and resolving its complexity into a kind of organism, order. I hate you, dad. Okay, that's the first one. Did you guys enjoy that? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does. It really works. It sounds like a poem. <laughs> sounds, I was like, mm, deep. All right. So, and and here's the next one. Um, this one is titled "Mother." Mother. I understood totally that in my hometown, and among people who knew me, there would be a lot of people who would be very cynical, and would say. Who does he think he is? And part of my conclusion is the same one I'm sure you run into, mother. If the only people allowed to write news stories were those who had never told a lie, we wouldn't have many stories. If the only people allowed to serve on juries were saints, we wouldn't have any juries. Mother, I thought there was a clear distinction between my private life and the deliberate use of a position of authority to seduce and abuse somebody in your care. And I would draw that distinction. I would say to you unequivocally, and it will probably sound pious and sanctimonious saying it, I am a sinner. I am a normal person. I am like everyone else I ever met. One of the reasons I go to God is that I ain't very good. I'm not perfect. I hate you, mother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Was that last one a Newt Gingrich quote? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it was? Oh my, oh my God, I can't believe I got it. <laughs> I was listening to it. I was like, I think this is a Newt Gingrich thing. I was oh like, my yes. God. 
I love how, it because how some, did you get that? I don't know because I was thinking I was like this is definitely somebody going through like a Catholic thing because I got this like and then I was like but this is about the government or and then I heard news stories and I was like yeah. he's got to be railing against the news media and he's a recently converted Catholic that's a Newt Gingrich quote. I oh my god! Was, wow, <laughs> wow, and it's a quote from 1984. Oh, uh, wow! An interview okay. in Mother Jones magazine. So then maybe well, I'm completely wrong because I. It, because he only well, recently been saying the same shit for a long no, time. No, but I thought there was the Catholic undertones, which I completely am adding to it. Then, all right. So then, wait, wait. What was the other one? Was that another presidential candidate? Wait, wait, wait. wait. Uh, Let's guess. Um, the jellyfish computer. I kind of feel like internet comments. Um, I let let me see if you guys guess if I do it in a different okay. voice. <clears throat> I'm Michael Silverblatt, <laughs> and if you haven't encountered. If you can't look at a jellyfish and see how miraculously complex it is, I don't know why it is, but people seem to say, look, it's say a computer and say, well, that's a computer. Does that make it clear is it who it is? Silverblatt? It is Michael Silverblatt <laughs> interviewing uh, Vikram Shanda at some point. <laughs> why does he just talk in the most meaningless circles ever? There's just, there's nothing there. So... What 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 have we learned here today, kids, about the use of poet voice? What what does it do to words? I I believe it makes them sound um, even more important than they are. Yes, I think it's a way to elevate meaninglessness to more meaningfulness. And I actually, you know, I have to say, like listening to you, it, that could have been a poem. I totally was like, I, all right. And in some ways, it was more entertaining than. Then some of the poems I've heard read by poets. I think poet uh, the Newt Gingrich one is actually the, there's a bit in the Newt Gingrich one that yes. is actually quite fascinating. Yes, when you if start talking about only people allowed to write news were those who had never told a lie. Oh, that's good stuff. All right. Well, next time on uh, on the Poet Voice Spectacular, I'll try to find something uh, that writer can guess within one guess. Next time, I might just read ingredients to a. Uh, to a cake or something you take the salt and you put it in the dish i hate you mom why did you make me watch you and dad fuck that night which part of that is not a recipe <laughs> all right ladies and gentlemen that's uh that's your poet voice interlude and uh i'll catch you next time with something even more obscure than newt gingrich and michael Silver. that'll do it for episode two of literary disco join us in two weeks when we post our episode in which julia makes us read sweet valley high our theme is by sean fox an additional song today from the q brothers for todd goldberg and julia pistel this is Ryder strong saying thanks for listening